I'm glad I get to preach two weeks in a row, and especially at Easter. I get to reinforce some things I said last week quickly, don't worry, and um, (laughs) then move on to two things that I noticed that I would never have noticed, likely, if I hadn't prepared for the sermon today. First, one thing I stressed last week is the physical nature of the resurrection. What could be clearer from from Luke's gospel account that Jesus' body, his risen body, is a physical body. It's not a ghost. That's the Greek word for spirit and ghost is the same there. Um, it, I mean, it's the same everywhere. But when Jesus says, I'm not a spirit, he's, he's not a ghost. Um, I said last week Thomas would have believed that Jesus was a ghost. Well, here we have a story where they do believe he is a ghost. Okay. And again, what does resurrection mean? It means that someone was physically alive and then that person was physically dead and then that person was physically alive and will never die again. There's no way to spiritualize the story into, into that Jesus was a great moral teacher whose teachings would live on. Because there was a time after Jesus' death in which Jesus was a great moral teacher whose t- the teachings would live on. And that was between Friday and Sunday morning. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the disciples knew Jesus as a great moral teacher who had been killed and whose teachings they hoped would continue on. But what do we see when we see the resurrection? The disciples don't believe because of joy. Isn't that wonderful? Have you ever been seen something just, I can't believe this is happening because there's so much joy. Whatever you make of the resurrection, you can't spiritualize it or moralize it away. The claim is that Jesus' physical body arose from physical death and will never die again. Well, last week I emphasized what that means for the entire universe. I'll take a different approach in a few minutes. Once we understand and have a grasp of what this idea of resurrection means, we see why it is unique, why it's unique in the Bible, why it's unique among world religions. And when I say the resurrection is unique, there might be a response like, but now wait a second, didn't Jesus raise people from the dead, like his friend Lazarus? And in fact, didn't people come back to life in the Old Testament? It seems like Elisha raised a, a woman's son. I mean, didn't people come back to life all the time? What's so special about Jesus' resurrection? Well, the answer is that those people were not resurrected. Jesus brought them back to life, but they would face death again. It, it's, it's really clear that two things are going on if you think about the Lazarus story. Do you remember some of the details about the Lazarus story? Lazarus comes stumbling out of the tomb, wrapped in his grave clothes, and Jesus says, unbind him, untie him, so he can get out of those grave clothes. Was anybody there to get Jesus out of his grave clothes? No. He just ascended through the grave clothes. These are two separate kinds of things. Lazarus had been physically alive. He had been physically dead. Now, again, he was physically alive, but he would die. Jesus, though, was resurrected. He's physically alive, and then he became physically dead, and then he became physically alive, and now he will never die. Or there might be the objection, well, all religions believe in life after death, although that's not true at all. Many religions have no concept of life after death. Or, well, you know, there are lots of stories about people dying and coming back to life in all kinds of mythologies from all around the world. But those stories do not match the resurrection. 
we have, and I saw, I guess there were three things I saw for the first time as I prepared this sermon. If you would go with me in your pew Bible to page 926. I want to point something out to you about the uniqueness of the resurrection, especially in the context of other religions, in the context of mythological systems from around the world. Acts 17, starting on page 926 in your pew Bible, Acts 17. Here we have a story. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you, but Paul is at the, it's called the Areopagus in verse 22. Sometimes that's translated as Mars Hill. It means the same thing. Ares is the Greek god of war, and Pagus is the Greek word for hill, and so Mars was the Roman name for the god of war. So Mars Hill, Ares Hill, Areopagus, it's all the same. It's the same word. It's a natural amphitheater. <laughs> in Athens, where the two hills come together and create uh, two hillsides that kind of grow together, if that makes kind of sense to you, where there are sitting places and you can stand at the bottom and people all the way up the hill can hear what whoever's saying down there can say. And uh, it's where all the philosophers gathered, the scholars of the time, the philosophers and the scientists and those who are interested in understanding the universe gathered to talk about things. The learned scholars of the day. And Paul begins to preach to them. And I'm not going to go through the whole passage because it's going to show up in the lectionary at some point, and whoever gets that Sunday can talk about that. But I want you to go down to page 30. I mean, sorry, to verse 30. He's been talking about an unknown God, a God the Athenians need to know about. He's been saying all kinds of interesting things about that God. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, and what that word resurrection means, as I said last week, this was a common idea in first century Judaism, and these are the scholars who talked to the Jewish philosophers and who understood things going on. Notice what happens. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Here's what they didn't say. They didn't say, oh, you mean like Orpheus. We've got a story about Orpheus. Orpheus was this Greek guy and his wife died and so he went down into hell and he played, he played beautiful music for Hades, the god of hell, and what you and I would call hell, at least the underworld. And he played music for Hades and, and uh, almost got his wife out. But Orpheus, Orpheus died, so he could try to get his wife out by being able to play beautiful music. You mean like Orpheus? They didn't say that. They didn't say, oh, you mean like Persephone. Persephone is one of the gods who died. She goes down into Hades. She marries Hades. And uh, Demeter, uh, Persephone's mother, uh, throws a fit and, um, and until Hades finally agrees to allow Persephone to come back to life a few months out of the year, and that's the growing season. And Persephone comes back to life, and then she dies, and that's when all the plants die. They didn't say, oh, you mean like Persephone. They didn't say, oh, you mean like Ulysses, who dies and goes to Hades and plays a trick on death and is able to get out. You mean like Ulysses. We've got stories about Ulysses. They didn't say that. They didn't say, you know, we've talked to Egyptian philosophers and they've got a story about a god named Osiris. And Osiris dies and his mother goes around and finds all the pieces of his chopped up body and puts them all together and he comes back to life. You mean like that? They didn't say that. These are the guys who know. They know full well they've got other stories that, about people coming back to life because it's their own stories. And they know what other people are doing. And what do they do when they hear of the resurrection? 
Some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. They didn't say, yeah, 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 we've heard about all this. Orpheus and Osiris and Persephone and all those people. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and the, and the story goes on. The point here is that if you say, well, other religions had the same idea, here are people from another religion who were confronted with the idea of the resurrection, understanding what that means, they mocked. See, these are very significant and very big claims to the resurrection. Um, this is why in another post-resurrection appearance, years and years later, the apostle John, John sees the risen Jesus, and here's what John writes. It's in the first book of Revelation. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is a big story. It's not a story about somebody playing a trick on death and coming back to life. It's saying somebody who has conquered death and I've got the keys of death and Hades. And once you understand that, like Thomas did in our reading last week, what more response do you have but to fall to your knees and say, my Lord and my God. But now, if Jesus is Lord and God the Son, this leads us to a conclusion. If Jesus is Lord, and if like Thomas we have to look at what happens and say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God, then we must do what he says. And I'd never seen before until I prepared this week how often in Scripture the resurrection of Jesus is linked to another concept, and that is repentance. Repentance and resurrection lie right next to each other in the text. In fact, I've already read it to you twice. If I can find my paper. In the Luke reading that I read just a few minutes ago, Jesus says to the disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Christ has died. Christ has risen you must repent. You must repent. He will come again. But you've got to better repent before he comes again. right? You better repent before he comes again. That's what Paul says at Mars Hill. That, that Pat, I just read it to you. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why are they commanded to repent? Because Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, it makes sense, I suppose, that if Jesus is Lord, we have to do what he told us to do. And what did Jesus keep saying to do? Repent. Repent. We must repent. Now, repentance is different than confession. And this is why Anglicans have a difficult time with repentance. Because confession, we do really well. I said, we did it good at the 8 o'clock service. And I said, no, I was tired. I said, okay, no, we do it very well. And I thought, well, I think we better do confession good and well. And we better do it both ways. Um, we have a nice little liturgy of confession. We'll follow it up here. There'll be a confession and an absolution. 
But I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but how many people end up confessing the same sin week after week after week? You just have the same kind of list to run through. You run through your standards and then the stuff you, that touched on this week. And then you got your three or four big ones that just bang, 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 bang. And then, okay, now, okay, I did that. So now what did I actually do this week? Oh, you got that. Well, that's because repentance is different from confession. Confession just means agreeing with, literally it means agreeing with. You're agreeing with God, what God says. You look at your life and you say, oh, let's just pull one out of the air. Anger. That shows up on a lot of people's lists. So I'm told. Um, anger, you know. Um, you're agreeing with God. I've got a problem with anger. Why do you come back the next week and confess anger again? Because that process of repentance got dropped out. Repentance means turning away and walking away. You start down a road towards anger. And then you, oh, and you turn around and you walk back the other way. And that's different from confession. And repentance is something we need to do. Because if Jesus is Lord, we better do what he says. And that brings us to our reading from 1 John this morning. It's on page 1021 in your pew Bible. It's 1 John beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. It's page 1021 in your pew Bible. In this passage, there are three words that need to be explicated for us. John starts off, I just, I just want to mention this in passing, uh, in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands. You're starting to get it. This is a physical experience the disciples have had with Jesus. The resurrection isn't directly addressed here, but this is not a spiritual, moralized experience that these disciples have had of Jesus. But the three words to talk about, the first one shows up in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim, the we is the disciples, the apostles. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. That word fellowship is kind of a religious insider word. I mean, religious people get it, and, not, and Christian people, I should say, get it, and non-Christian people don't get it. If you just walk up to a non-person, Christian person at Walmart and say, would you like to enter into fellowship with me? They're not going to know what in the world you're even talking about, okay? Fellowship is one of those religious insider words, okay? Fellowship just means something a lot like friendship. That's all it means. It's just become an old-fashioned word for friend. An old-fashioned word for friendship. We just kind of got stuck in this religious context. And so we talk about fellowship, and what we really talk about is friendship. When I was a kid, I heard a preacher say that the word friendship came from the idea of having two friends in the, or two, sorry, the word fellowship came from the idea of having two fellows in the same ship. I've since come to doubt that that's the proper etymology of the word fellowship, but it does kind of make sense, you know, two fellows who are friends and they get in the same ship, okay? It's kind of like the idea, I guess. It, it's fr friendship. And John is saying we have friendship with God, that you can be a friend of God. Jesus has died and created the way for human beings and God to become friends. And doesn't that sound nice, but something turns up that breaks that friendship. So Christ has died. He's made a way for God and people to be friends. But then something shows up that breaks that fellowship. 
And that's in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship, that's that word again, if we say we have friendship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Something breaks that friendship and that sin. Messing up, law-breaking, missing the mark, literally the Greek word means. It comes from archery where you set up the, the bullseye and you get your bow and arrow and you aim right at the bullseye, but you miss the bullseye, you miss the mark. God's painted the bullseye very clearly. He says many times, the bullseye is be as holy as I am holy. And none of us can hit that bullseye. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. What verse 6 says is that we can't hold on to our sins and be a friend of God. We have to repent and turn away from our sins. And repeatedly John says that we're all sinners. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Now the response to that news, I think there are three of them. The first is to deny that it's true. You might say, well, I don't really feel like a sinner. I don't really feel that way. But verse 8 is true. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Maybe John intends some humor there. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You didn't deceive your parents, and you're not going to deceive your kids. You're not going to deceive your neighbors and your co-workers, your roommates, your spouses, whatever. You can deceive yourself that you have no sin, but everyone around you who knows you, you haven't tricked them at all. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And you might be receiving that message and saying, well, you know, I don't really feel like a moral failure. I don't really feel like a sinner. Well, okay. I mean, I really don't have much more to say. I mean, I've done my job with you guys. Because all I'm supposed to do is proclaim the truth. And the truth is that we're all sinners. But if you're here and you're saying, well, I don't feel like I'm any kind of a sinner, um, keep in mind what I'm going to say. Because I'll bet you, you're going to end up like an awful lot of people in this room where you went through life saying everything is messed up. Something like this, at least. Everything's messed up. I don't know why everybody keeps messing my life up. Everything is messed up. Everything got messed up. And then one day you're going to slip and you're going to say, I really messed up. And you're going to say, I really messed up, but I'll fix it. And you're going to come to the place where you say, I really messed up and I can't fix it. Well, then you're going to need what I'm going to be talking about. Because an awful lot of us in this room have reached that point and that's why we're here. Why do you think we keep showing up on Sunday morning? company's nice, but that's not why we need Jesus. Another response is to feel condemnation. I mean, I've, I, I, I really haven't experienced this myself, but I've experienced people experiencing it in front of me, and it's not pleasant. I know I'm a sinner. God can never forgive me. I mean, God can forgive ordinary people, but not somebody who did what I did. But you really need to listen to what I'm saying here. Jesus himself said he didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. He says the world would be saved through him. 
we're going to see later that the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus covers the sin of the world. There's not one sin anybody committed that wasn't on Jesus' mind on the cross. And then the third response is to accept, just simply accept that fact and to move forward. John not only points out to us here that friendship with God is broken by sin, but he goes on to give us some insight into how that brokenness can be healed. And here we move on to two more words that are in chapter 2 of 1 John. The first word we'll talk about is in verse 2 of chapter 2. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That includes all sins. He's the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's this movement in liturgy to try to take out old-fashioned words and I say dumb them down. Maybe that's not nice. But to take old-fashioned words and kind of change them. I say leave the old-fashioned words in and explain what the words mean. You see, I'm supposed to explain to you what the resurrection means but I need simple words for propitiation. Why not just teach you what the word propitiation means? It makes sense. Why can't what? Why don't we teach people stuff? It seems to make sense to me. Anyway, propitiation. Some people get really nervous about this word, not only because it's not very commonly used and old-fashioned sounding, but its origin. That word propitiation John chooses on purpose. It's a Greek word, and it comes right out of the pagan religion of the Greeks. Propitiation is what you do when you have to bribe the gods. You're going off to war, let's just say, and so you make a sacrifice to the gods, hoping you'll get some of them at least on your side to fight your enemy. You give up something very valuable to yourself, maybe even your own child, and you sacrifice to the gods, hoping that by giving them something they really like and enjoy, that you'll bribe them and get them on your side. And that basic concept makes Christians awfully nervous because it comes out of that pagan background. But the word itself, John takes and baptizes and makes it a Christian word. Christians believe that Jesus paid the penalty for sin, and again, that's all sin. I think it was three weeks ago Father Alex preached on the drinking the cup of wrath. He died on the cross to bring atonement, to bring friendship with God. Jesus makes it possible to become a friend with God, and yet our sin breaks that friendship. But not only did he die on the cross to bring atonement, but he rose from the dead. And here we start to see, John is telling us why resurrection is crucial to repentance. The third word to work through here and talk about is in verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, notice how tender he is. My little children. He tells them you're sinners, you're deceiving yourselves, but he says you're my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The simplest way of understanding the Greek word paraclete here, translated as advocate, the simplest way for 21st century Americans to understand that is to say that an advocate is like a lawyer. In fact, don't we use that word advocate and when it shows up to refer to a lawyer? Someone who pleads your case to God the Father. And maybe you've been told that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And maybe you've pictured something like this. 
James messes up. James sins. And God the Father looks down and sees that James sinned. But Jesus, my advocate, says, Oh, but Father, you're a merciful God. You're a God of mercy. And on, for my sake, for my sake, would you show mercy to James and forgive his sin? And then God the Father says, Yes, I'm merciful. I'll forgive James. That's how I'd pictured it before. But I don't think, well, I know that's not what John's getting at here. <coughs> now, I know God is merciful. I'm not saying God isn't merciful. Don't go out and say, Father James said that God isn't merciful. No, God is merciful. But I'm saying that's not the picture that John is painting here. I'll get to that picture in just a minute. It's not what John is painting here. Or maybe I picture that, you know, James sins. And God the Father looks down and James has sinned. And, and, and he's going to punish me. But Jesus says, but, but God, you're a God of love. Father, you're a God of love. Because you love me and because you love James, will, will you forgive him for my sake? Will you forgive him? And God says, okay, I'll forgive him. But that's not what John says is going on here. Now, I'm not saying God isn't loving. I'm saying that's not the picture that John is drawing here. And the key is back in verse 9 of chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it doesn't say that God is faithful and merciful or that God is faithful and loving. Although God is faithful, is merciful, is loving. But he says, because God is just, he'll forgive our sins. But now, if God is just, wouldn't he punish us for our sins? Now we get to what's going on here. Lawyers do two things. First, they describe the facts. And the second is they explain or at least remind the judge of the law. And what Jesus says to the Father is, when James sins, and God the Father looks down, Jesus says, Father, you're a just God. You're a God of justice. And I know that you've already received payment for the penalty of sin because I paid it, Jesus says. And God, since you're a God of justice and you know that I paid the penalty for James, it'd be unjust to demand further payment from you, from James. And if you're going to be faithful and just, you have to forgive James because of what I did. And that's why death and resurrection are both necessary to repair the broken friendship between believers and God the Father. Well, I have much, much more to say about this, but I won't say it in the sermon. I'm going to save it for the communion service, even though I'll be reading words out of a book. Listen for the words of God's justice. And yes, listen for the words of God's love and mercy too. Listen for them, grasp them, and take them to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.